Malcolm Honline is in Israel, Baruch Hashem, and he is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM, and a Gemar Tov to you. A Gemar Tov to you. It's great to be with you and to have an opportunity to speak from the holy city of Jerusalem, which is electric right now as people anticipate the great events of the coming days after seeing the gatherings of 100 and 150,000 people on successive nights at the Kotel. I understand in, in before Yom Kippur, uh, even uh, in the days before Yom Kippur, there were more than a million and a half people at the Kotel wow. in the in the weeks um, over Abslichot and uh, building up to Rosh Hashanah. And now that number has been uh, greatly uh, uh, augmented with all of those who are coming and who will be coming for Birkat Kohanim and everything in the city. And there are so many new developments at the city of David, which we visited yesterday at the tunnels, at the uh, excavations that are going on there, the developments in both places. No matter how often you've been here, you got to come again. There's so much to see, so much excitement. It's incredible. A um, couple of points. First of all, you, you, you've said it, uh, you're right. You're spot on with your description about the upcoming uh, or the days that lead up to the holiday. Uh, many people, understandably, even if they haven't been in Israel for Sukkot, can imagine how incredible it is. What you're describing is how amazing this run up to the holiday is. These few days beforehand, the city is just uh, in the mo- and the whole state of Israel is in the, in the most incredible mood. And the coming off of Yom Kippur, and then and then moving forward towards Sukkot with this Shabbat in between, which is also pretty unique. Um, it, it really is an amazing feeling. Secondly, uh, I think because we have, thank God, I mean you certainly more than anybody, uh, have the opportunity to travel to Israel so often, we do forget. And that's why I said it, it, it was only a slight joke about spending the next half hour just speaking about traveling to Israel. We don't realize. Just how many people, um, Jewish people here in the United States of America, forget other parts of the world, who have never been to Israel. People who have never visited, who've never taken a tour. Uh, people who are too old to take advantage of birthright, because we know at times it, it could certainly be cost prohibitive to, to get to Israel or travel anywhere halfway around the world. And it, 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 it may not be such a bad waste of time, frankly, to just remind people that one of the best things they could do for themselves is to plan a trip, whether it's a Chag or any other time. And I'm sure you get the same feeling that I get very often, that because of this unique opportunity to travel there on a regular basis, we don't realize how much other people are missing. First of all, there's two sides to this. One, that we not take it for granted. When we think back that our even our parents, but certainly our grandparents and great-grandparents, didn't have this opportunity didn't see Israel rebuilt to be here and to be a little part of it and at least to be witnesses to it. And the, and as I said in my comments earlier, we're exactly in this vein, that there's so much excitement. There's no other place in the world where you feel Shabbos, you feel the Yom Tovim, the Hagin, to walk on, on Yom Kippur and not see a car anywhere, any place, to the feeling that permeates that whether religious or non-religious, everybody commemorates in the majority, overwhelming majority of Israelis fast uh, on on Yom Kippur, and it's it's um, uh, it's something that you sense in every store, in every marketplace, everywhere you go, and to see all the things that are closed 
on Yom Sukkot, not on Cholomoed, but on Sukkot itself and how people prepare and the supermarkets, everything so stacked with stuff as uh, that will quickly be depleted as people buy everything that moves. Have you met the uh, Aravas guy that's uh, overcharging? Have you met him yet in the street? <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't met that one. But there are plenty of them around, so I, I so, assume that to my son's <laughs> Someone told me today about one of the guys that's selling the the Aravas that you want for Yonta. But boy, did they want a premium price for it, I'll tell you that much. And Malcolm, I don't mean to put a damper on this, but I always think it's important in terms of the perspective, not for Jewish history, the perspective for the Jewish future, I did see the aerial shots of Slichot at the Western Wall. Believe you me, I saw them, took great pride, and felt like you did. It was one of the most amazing scenes and sights I've ever seen. Uh, but we do know that that is, a, that is a very, especially when you see the aerial view, it's a small little area of the Temple Mount area that our people were dominating. And I am hoping for the day, as we said in our tefillot um, uh, on Yom Kippurim just a couple of days ago, I am hoping for the day uh, when, in fact, we not only rejoice on the holidays on the Temple Mount, but we rejoice on the holidays within the Temple itself, uh, the binyan that we are all looking forward to. So, yes, I loved the photos that you're referencing, but we still have a lot of work to do. We do, but uh, when we walked from the Meishiloch, from the Shiloh pool, and up the steps, you know, that were discovered, the walkway where all the people were all regal, everybody who came to go up to the temple, and you feel like you relive it, that walking on those stones and the actual stones and seeing a coin from, from the uh, period of the re- revolt to see ashes from the time when the temple burnt, the actual ashes uh, that have been discovered now as they uncover this incredible roadway that will eventually lead all the way up under the old city wall to the Temple Mount itself, that that the you, you are part of history, but it's part of the future, and they want to take away our past, to take away our future. And here we have the chance to re-experience and to give your kids... And the experience of a lifetime to be connected to feel this, and they will, it will remain with them forever. So it, it's not a tourism pitch; it's about who we are and what we are, yep. and enabling us at a time of challenges like we face, and I'm sure we'll discuss. This in, in strengthens us, emboldens us to know that we are able to meet all of these challenges. Last point, by the way. You mentioned two-thirds of Israelis fasting on Yom Kippur. When you, and, of course, the figure was a drop higher years ago. But when you think about it, with the population of Israel getting to where it's getting, uh, in the, you know, I mean, we're getting close to 10 million at this point, that, that, you know, that number continues to grow like it does, and still we're maintaining a fasting on Yom Kippur rate in the 60% range that is un. Believable. Obviously, there are plenty of people who would like to see it higher, but you get my point. It is an unbelievable statistic. And again, folks, keep it in mind that the population of Israel continues to grow, and yet that statistic, again, it may drop a bit, but it's certainly maintaining itself beautifully. It is such an important thing. I, I was quelling, and I know you appreciate this, on, on Wednesday, excuse me, on Tuesday morning here at JMA, and we played the Galitzal News, and just to hear. Israeli radio reminding people when the fast starts and ends and how bus service is going to be curtailed and stopped for 25 hours 
I mean, again, our predecessors would never, ever have believed it would have been a dream for them to make up a radio broadcast like that. And we get to live it at this point every single day, which is just remarkable. All right, there's a lot of news to get to. Is there a um, is there a thaw in the Cold War between Netanyahu and Lieberman? Are there more proposed negotiations going on to finally get this government in place? There does, does not appear to be, and it seems that most of the talks have, have yielded no progress. Uh, obviously, everything is on hold now. The prime minister is away for the week and out of his office, and the... Um, uh, although there may be various clandestine approaches to different parties and discussions, uh, informal discussions, um, the fact is that not much is happening. People are waiting for the uh, attorney general's report. And now that the um, the pre-indictment hearings are, um, and presentations are over now, he has to make a decision whether to bring charges, and I think that will affect the outcome that we could party has demonstrated the unity in backing Netanyahu. Right. Um, Important but point. The, that, that would be affected by the outcome of the um, um, outcome of what, what the, the uh, legal process will be, according to a lot of the people. But the um, but right now, Likud is, is holding together as are the other parties um, so far. But we will see. It'll take, a, I think, after the hugging, we'll see. But so far, Netanyahu has not returned the mandate, but I believe he will. And then it'll be up to Gantz to try and form a government. And there are people, many people, who are telling me now that they think a third election is, is a likelihood. Wow. But not a big change. In, so far, the polls show that there wouldn't be a radical change in the in the outcome. But, you know, they face... So many issues and, and uh, challenges now that people are anxious to have a government, a stable government that's in place. Um, and I think that the people will demand more of the leadership in terms of this and uh, taking the steps that are, are, are necessary. When we see, uh, you know, Iran escalating its rhetoric and its threats, and um, I think that the, the people um, are concerned about what they think the direction of U.S. policy in their actions in the Syria and, and vis-a-vis the Kurds, you know, everything is a layer upon layer of um, that is essential to have a strong government in place that can address these issues. Malcolm, if there was another election, what month would it be in? Or, or sometime in early 2020? Yeah, February, probably. Wow! So you need to give three months of notice. And the Knesset would have to vote it, so they don't come back until what, the end of October, so November, December, January, yeah, probably February. And these sources used the word likely. They said the likelihood of a third election. Increasingly likely. Unbelievable. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web and the and the Siegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Wow, likely Israeli election. Malcolm, whose missiles hit the Iran oil tanker? Well, that's going to be, it's a good question. They're obviously pointing a finger at Saudi Arabia. They can point a finger at others. Right now, there's been no determination yet, and we will have to see. We see that the, the um, escalation, the rhetoric, and the challenges between Saudi Arabia and Iran continue. Uh, Iran is also 
concerned about the Turkish invasion in 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 Syria and has uh, opposed it, uh, offered in fact to negotiate or mediate between Syria and Turkey, which has been turned down. Uh, they say only the Syrian army can fight to protect the border, meaning that it shouldn't be Turkey. Turkey is obviously escalating its operations there, and um, I, the international community seems to be paralyzed uh, to a large degree. The the Kurds, uh, the civilian populations from the border areas are evacuating. Did President the Kurds are put in? I'm sorry. Did President Trump and the United States administration abandon the Kurds? And leave them, uh, leave them out there to dry, and um, and, uh, and and really allow essentially for Turkey to uh, commence with this uh, invasion. Well, we removed our troops, and the the president has said that he will bring economic disaster on Turkey if they exceed the, what needs to be done. But the question is, what what measure is that? And why we would have allowed this in the first place, because when the president supposedly went into the call with Erdogan, it was to oppose it and then um, somehow agreed with Erdogan or gave him the green light uh, for this, which sends a message. And it's a cumulative message after the failure to respond to the drone attack or to the um, attack on Saudi Arabia. And, uh, and now this, that, that we don't create the perception, the concern is that we should not create the perception that America is not staying by its allies and not, is, they're not ready to, to uh, take action when necessary. They have imposed sanctions. The sanctions are harsh and work on Iran. Uh, we have sanctions on, on Turkey as well. But this is a very visible as, and symbolic, if not only um, military action, that sends chills across the region, and even here in Israel, many articles have appeared about it. Um, and the, the, there are people saying, well, we should not get involved in a war. The Kurds, the Kurds stood by us. They were the fighters who really took on ISIS most effectively. And I think Turkey's in for a surprise for what, because they can bomb, and they certainly have military superiority over the Kurds. But bombing doesn't control territory. You can defeat an enemy, but you have to have troops on the ground, and they're going to find really stiff resistance. The Ashmaga are really tough fighters. The IPG will be, uh, I think, present a military challenge and could bog down Turkish troops, though they will have, uh, as I said, overwhelming uh, overwhelming force. Uh, Turkey has options. They can release a lot of the migrants. They can um, you know, they, they plan to move the population into northern Syria, which also has implications for Syria and for demographic balances there. Uh, so the inaction of the international community in dealing with the immigration crisis gave Turkey this uh, uh, upper hand in, in having that threat and taking these steps against uh, YPG, which they call a terrorist organization, uh, has now created a new dynamic in, in the region. We're seeing a lot of hot spots that are developing, and each one uh, adds to the instability in the region. Egypt and Ethiopia, for instance, are are very near a very serious clash because of the diversion of waters of the Nile um, in Ethiopia, where it begins and goes through, meets the, the Blue Nile, meets the White Nile in Khartoum, and goes to Egypt, where it provides 90% of the water for irrigation, for uh, drinking, and and the 
something Egypt has always been extremely sensitive and warned them about. But now they're going ahead with this um, the plan for the great dam that the, they have said that they are going to build there. And this becomes really a source of tremendous tension, and you could end up with both military and, and uh, conflict and other um, or things short of it, but certainly uh, that's a possibility. Prime Minister of Ethiopia was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Right, and, and he was uh, he rejected the proposal calling for an effort to maintain, because he called the, uh, the proposal by Egypt, you know, uh, maintaining the um, colonial-based water allocations, and they, the Egyptians attacked them for inflexibility and asked for international mediation, which Ethiopia rejected. So this is a one of, just one of many tension-filled um, potential conflicts in the in region that we have to look at. We see also Hezbollah escalations, the, we got, the, the we got, movements towards the We've got to go back for a second to to the Kurds for a moment. What is the at, at what point will President Trump say it's enough? If he's if he and Washington are looking toward what Erdogan is doing and and have in mind, based on what you're saying, have in mind some type of guideline um, when, when you know, they would recommend or demand that, you know, Turkish action would stop there, how close are we to that? What is what is that guideline where, where Washington will say, you know, enough is enough? I don't know, and I don't think it's been explicitly stated. stated. The president has used different terminology, but saying that he knows when it occurs uh, and keeps warning Turkey, but there's no measurable... Um, dimension to this, that, that you could say that at this point it's too much, at that point it's not too much. It's too much now, uh, according to many, and the feeling that the, of abandonment and the, the perception that is created is already done. And now we have to make decisions based on, on how do we look at the long-term stand in the United States. We're not talking about he, the president has said he doesn't want to have further military involvement. But there were a lot of things we could have done before. We knew that this was coming. And the question is, what message do we send and how far Turkey goes? When they start bombing increasing areas, what happens to all the ISIS, the thousands and thousands of ISIS soldiers who are there under uh, control of the Kurds would say that they will turn to fighting the Turks and release the ISIS people. Turkey said they would take in control of them. But nobody's thinking about what happens if thousands of ISIS guys then uh, can rejoin the groups in Iraq and Syria and, um, you know, can join the fight against uh, our, our long-term interests. After all the blood that was shed to, to get them into these prisons and to take control of the situation. And, and that's just one manifestation. Right. So with that in, of, with, uh, with the, that with that in mind... Again, to the average guy like me, it would sound like Iran and Syria have no problem then with what Turkey is doing. Would that be accurate or not? No, Iran has a lot of problems with what Turkey's doing. And the Syrians have problems because this is challenging their army, their forces. The control now for that area will turn to Turkey, and the Syrian army will not have any effect there. So you're not unifying the country. So they are very much opposed to it. So, so just the fact that um, that ISIS fighters would would have more access and freedom—that's not enough to make Iran happy. For as far as Iran is concerned, just like Syria, they end up losing control over a certain region because of Turkey's actions. Right, and they don't—they <clears throat> don't want to see these ISIS guys 
just uh, you know running around loose right um because they want stability in syria in order for them to be able to advance their military and other interests there and as you know they are doing more and more in terms of uh, the uh, militias and others that are, are moving there they trying to build the infrastructure in in iraq to bypass it they just opened the crossing between iraq and syria which was uh, was touted as increasing the flow of goods, and, and Iran made it very clear that it was increasing their military operational capacity because they would have this easier route to cross over. And and Russia so, and, Ru- both- and, and Russia would prefer if Erdogan what? No, Russia. they don't. They want stability in Iran. They in in uh, Syria. Syria. Uh, they want to maintain their control, which they've done with very limited forces. They're not in a military position really to challenge. So there's no so nobody's happy with Turkey's action. Nobody's happy with what happened this week. I don't think anybody wanted the Turkey to do this. Uh, certainly NATO has objected, um, but the and and the countries uh, involved. Israel came out very strongly against it. Russia spoke against it. So everything um, you've told us about Erdogan acting unilaterally and seeing himself as as the ultimate you know down the road the ultimate leader. Of a much larger region, and by the way, did you see the? Um, I, I, I don't remember exactly now. I, I believe it was his statements about uh, the old city, the Temple Mount. Um, uh, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but, but everything you've told us in terms of his ultimate goal, it seems that's what he's working toward. He, he is working towards hegemony uh, in the region, just as the Iranians are, and they. They one wants the Ottoman Empire, one wants the Persian Empire to be rebuilt, and um, and remember we have a significant Jewish population in in Iran in Turkey yet, um, and their situation is always sensitive. So the um, um, yes, he is he is moving on his uh, aspirational goals at a time when his economy, like that of Iran, is in free fall. The currency has fallen again. And, um, you know, they're not benefiting their people who are, are suffering from um, unemployment. You saw the results of the elections, which were certainly an expression of dissatisfaction. But uh, he, they, they go on the agenda that they set. And you see that the international community today appears to be generally uh, powerless. Erdogan, Erdogan needed an opportunity to flex his muscles, to show the world that he's serious about, you know, military expansion. And I guess this was the easiest target. No, they see this, the YPJ is a terrorist organization. They have carried out attacks, they, but they, and, and they, the problem is that this affects the larger Kurdish population also. Um, and they were looking for a pretext in order to act against them and to clear the border where the YPG has been operating. And do challenge. They did challenge, uh, and, and both internally, and externally. Um, but the you know the, the Kurds have been allies and have been friends to the United States and to Israel and have good relations with them. And it's more than that. It's the lawlessness. It's the fact that all of these countries that you can, as you said, the attack on the Iranian uh, uh, tanker. Right. But remember all the attacks we had against, and and even Iran seizing the British tankers, etc. It's almost as if. We have a, a lawless region, and that the you know the we, the United States, the West, the, the NATO, everybody uh, is sitting with their you know criticizing, but sitting on their hands. Yeah. 
Um, all right, we got to move to Germany. People want to know uh, what you know about the attack on uh, Yom Kippur in Germany and the reaction, the reaction of German officials and others uh, to what occurred. Uh, you and I, of course, we're hoping we can get through the high holiday season without any episodes anywhere around the world targeting uh, Jewish sites. Unfortunately, many of us on Yom Kippur heard about uh, what happened in Germany. What can you tell us about that episode? Well, obviously it was very serious. It was a, an armed attack, whether it was an individual or more still unclear that they did say that there were some other people who may be co-conspirators. Uh, others said it was just uh, him, uh, this one uh, neo-Nazi, um, maybe associated with the National Socialist Underground, which was very active in the early 2000s um, and uh, took aim at, against and, and targeted pro-migration uh, politicians. Uh, and this guy, the, the two people were shot, did not appear to be uh, Jewish, although he did try to enter the synagogue. And again, an argument about the importance of synagogue security. And the people inside said they were prepared to, to uh, fight and to, to take him on if it was necessary. But they were able to prevent his entry, and he then just shot people in the street and inside, a, I think, a falafel shop. But we know the number of attacks is almost 600 in, in 2018. They attribute many to right-wing causes, although they lump together Muslim and right-wing. Um, but whatever it is, we, we know that there is a dangerous escalation everywhere in Europe, and including in Germany. The Prime Minister Merkel visited the synagogue, but at the same time, in discuss, discussing uh, Hezbollah, and the, and the, uh, obviously she said that you know the attacks and the verbal attacks to threaten to destroy Israel, this is just anti-Israel rhetoric and not anti-Semitic. Well, that sends the wrong message. There were 10 Americans in the synagogue. I mean, and this was uh, the 70, 80 people who were there. Right. Uh, thank God everybody was fine. But we got to understand how serious the, the attacks are across Europe and the uh, and that we cannot separate these and what the leaders of the Iran Revolutionary Guard say when they say they want to destroy Israel, when the leaders of Iran want to say they, they want to destroy Israel, and Germany keeps pushing for keeping the JCPOA and to, to sustain trade with a regime that openly threatens to destroy the Jewish state, and through that, the Jewish people. I know that um, it's different in a way, <laughs> When we're, when we're dealing with uh, with people who are threatening Jews and they don't have weapons on them. But, you know, you mentioned lawlessness, and I'm sure you've heard, even though you're in Israel now, I'm sure you've heard over the high holidays here of episodes, Brooklyn, Staten Island, and I'm sure many other cities in the United States where where Jewish kids are being terrorized. That, that you know, it may sound dramatic, but that's essentially what it is. People who feel they have, you know, uh, the run of the place and can, and can go ahead and... Uh, and terrorize Jewish kids and chase them and uh, and make them feel threatened, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I, you know, the only, the only, I, I keep attributing a lot of this, as you know, to a certain attitude that uh, that the police, unfortunately, in this area have to have at this point because they're so afraid of uh, of every action that they take. Uh, and I think there's a feeling that you know the bad guys, uh, you know, feel they have a little bit more slack, so to speak. But this is getting this is getting serious. This is getting uh, to a point where, you know, if if local governments are not going to step in and create an atmosphere that this is not going to be tolerated, then we're heading down a really bad slippery slope. 
Well, we've seen this sharp increase, especially in the New York area. I think NYPD does take this very seriously. We know about the briefings for the holidays, the assignment of, of police to synagogues. Um, but there is a general attitude of leniency on the parts of uh, the educational system, the judicial system, police at times, where these incidents are not treated with the seriousness that they should be, meaning that even what appears to be a minor incident has to be dealt with or else it, as you said, it gives license to others, and dismissing it as as youthful, you know, excesses is not right because these guys then take with them the hatred and the belief that they can get away with it and spread it to others, and then the incidents uh, escalate. And many of them are not harmless. Many of them are not without uh, uh, without victims, and the psychological damage that's done that's to the individual that's uh, targeted is serious enough. And I think the the um, the fact that this synagogue in Germany had taken the security precautions, how many of our synagogues have still to take the necessary precautions and not to make our places uninviting and not to do anything else, but to to make sure that everybody is safe and that we take the steps at our schools and in our JCCs and every other vehicle to prevent the attacks. And that means that the entire system has to be devoted. I know New York City created an office on this. The question is, how does it translate? What are the resources that are being allocated uh, to fight the, 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 the rise in the, of, of specifically anti-Semitic, not all races, not all things, specifically anti-Semitic attacks? The others have to be addressed, but this is in particular. And, you know, the lies, the distortions, the misrepresentations in the media have to stop also. And, and the misuse of the Internet and stuff to spread these messages of hate have to be addressed, and we, we have to see to it that the community acts in a unified, and God willing, this year we'll see more of the efforts that are being initiated will come to fruition, and, um, and, and we will counter this trend. Uh, the condemnations, the verbal condemnations are important. It's the actions on the ground that count. And I don't think our public officials and, uh, and government officials realize the severity of it, and, I hate, and you know what it's going to take in order for this to become a serious issue. Because they've been, they've been, and you know when there are positive. Sorry, but I just want to say when there are positive steps, it gets no coverage. You know there was a thing called the Charter of Makkah that was adopted in May in Saudi Arabia and Mecca, where the leading Muslim scholars from 137 countries offered guidance uh, on concepts that champion moderate Islam and and their statements, what they demanded of people, and said what Islam demands. Nobody promotes that. They don't. You don't see the credit and the need to hold people just to the account of what of what they said and, and respecting the others' legitimate rights and the rights to existence and to advance laws to deter the promotion of hatred, the instigation of violence and terrorism, the clash of civilizations. I mean, that gets no message and no mention. The uh, positive efforts, but the negative guys get get the limelight, and then that becomes the reward for them. And we have to say that our society, and means our media, our entertainment sectors, the internets, which influences so many of the youth, really we have to scrutinize it and, and, uh, and not hide behind the, the excuse of freedom of speech. We want freedom of speech protected, but there has to be limits like yelling fire in a crowded theater. That's what's happening today. Yeah, 100%. And we, uh, we all felt and hoped that the existence of the state of Israel would curtail that. We also hoped that uh, as things were improving in, in most major cities in the diaspora, that it would continue to head in that direction. And sometimes we get these stark reminders 
that the anti-Semitism is there and there are people who want to act upon it. Uh, there are a lot of people saying very outrageous things. I'm sure you've seen all the stories about people who blame water problems on the Jewish community and people who blame infrastructure problems in this country and other countries on the Jewish community. And, you know, as long as all these things go unchecked, that attitude, that collective attitude toward the Jewish community is not going to improve. If anything, it's just going to... And the lies and this... You're absolutely right. <clears throat> and you can't underscore what you just said enough even when it seems relatively minor, and the New York Times writes about the Jordan Valley, and such a distorted uh, a story about the, they don't mention the thousand Palestinians come to work there, the, and, and tens of thousands who work in Israel every day, that 9% of the, of the Jordan Valley is a buffer zone along the Jordanian border, and that much of it is a restricted area because it's a fire zone, uh, and uh, I think at 46% of it. So it's not that Palestinians are barred from living there. People are barred because it's a military zone, not because of anything else. It's restricted to Israelis as much as it is to Palestinians. But the whole story about what, why the importance, why Jordan Valley has a buffer zone now, seeing what's going on in Iraq, to have given them free access to a short trip across Jordan, underscores why for Jordan and for Israel it's so so critical, and yet the lies can just continue and and go unanswered, and they feel that they, they, there's no standard to which they're held. Hundred yeah, percent true. We have to be aware of this, and as you always say, these are these are things to be discussed with government officials, especially when they're back in their hometowns this time of year. Everyone has to make people aware of what's going on out there and how public statements and public action led by government officials are so critical at this time. Um, and also, can I just say that there are MOUs, Memorandums of Understanding, being signed with Arab countries that are neglecting and negating the Jewish claims to their heritage, meaning in countries like uh, Algeria and Libya and Yemen and others where they're specifically saying that they can keep the secret Torah, that we recognize that these are all their property or their patronage. I mean, it's outrageous, and the United States is signing on to these deals one after another. We have a couple more coming up now. It's imperative people make their voices heard to Elliot Engel and the House Foreign Relations Committee, to Secretary Pompeo, to any of the parties that are involved in this, that this practice has to stop. We already signed several, and they make specific reference to the Jewish, uh, uh, sometimes to the Jewish uh, memorabilia and relentos uh, from the uh, communities who should have the rightful claim to them. We'll wrap up with some good news. Sunday night in Jerusalem, clear in the upper 60s. Bad Sukkot weather, huh? And Honduras recognizing Jerusalem as the capital. The Republic of Nauru recognizing Jerusalem as the capital. Wait a and second. Which is, which is better news, that you have good weather Sunday night or that Honduras recognizes Jerusalem? <laughs> well, for me, the first about the weather is much more important, but... I'm not being selfish. I wanted to be sure with everybody that these recognitions are, are important as they mount. And the uh, and also the study that came out of the Brandeis, which is university periodically updated, that claims there are 7.5 million Jews here up from, wow. what was it, uh, 7.1, and uh, um, I think they said it was 6.5 a few years ago. So they're claiming there's a Jewish population increase in 1.6 million uh, children being raised as Jewish wow. in the United States, but we are a much older population than others, and more than one in ten Jews is not white. 
as they, they do of color. Uh, so it's a very interesting study, but we're still 2% of the population, but right. better than some of the numbers that have been given. And the enemy would never believe that. Um, Malcolm, I must know, <laughs> uh, Sunday night, you're in a rooftop sukkah or you're on a street-level sukkah. Which one? Street level. Street level in Jerusalem. Easy for easy for people easy for people to drop in. No, there's a wall around the place and, uh, and a couple of security guards. That's that's that, that's what your that's what your son-in-laws have been doing, huh? About it. Forget about the little of an estrogen. You have to building that wall around the sukkah garden. Well, it was it's been there for I think a couple of decades, but. Uh, and the watchtower doesn't hurt either. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's going to be a great holiday. Please, God, and a peaceful one, hopefully, for everybody. We're reconvening two weeks from today, I assume? God willing. Have a wonderful Chag, and yes, thanks sir. so much for joining us. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Our next weekly update will be Erev Shabbos Bracious, which is the 25th of October, two weeks from today. Make sure to be tuned in.